Subsequently, I think like four years later, in New Britain, Connecticut, the police are called into a domestic quarrel uh, uh, at an apartment. Uh, they're, they're breaking up the couple. They got the young man who was being abusive. They were bringing him out to bring him to this police station. And on the way out, she screams, the, the, the young woman screams, and he's got skulls in the closet. Welcome to a special episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. No one's been in more tombs than state archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni, and in this episode, part two of a conversation with Bellantoni about his new book, And So the Tomb Remained, I talk with Nick about those times when a tomb is also a crime scene. We'll also talk about the latest developments concerning a number of Revolutionary War skeletons found in the basement of a home in Ridgefield just before Christmas a year ago. From robbing the graves of the great and good to solving a mystery from a revolutionary past, it's Tales from the Crypts coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. I'm Walt Woodward. We're talking with Nick Bellantoni, state archaeologist emeritus, about his new book, And So the Tomb Remained. And Nick, now we get into a different kind of tomb visit where you're not visiting a restoration, you're going to a crime scene. One of the stories that is just remarkable is the story of the Henry Chauncey tomb in Middletown, right? Indian Hill Cemetery, yes. Yeah, so tell us about that. Well, I got a call from the uh, Middletown Police Department because they had found a skull behind a car wash in Cromwell, Connecticut, just north of Middletown. The medical examiner had realized that the the, the skull represented someone that had been dead a long time. You move by that really quickly. They found a skull behind a car wash. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Basically, well, they were doing an investigation of some guys that were involved with robbery. Uh, and interrogating one of the accomplices, he mentioned that there was a skull behind the car wash. And so, you know, he wasn't a very reliable witness, but the, but the, the police decided to check it out. And sure enough, there, there was a skull. The medical examiner realized it was an old skull by cortical loss. And they told, you know, they advised the police to contact me. So I came down and took a look at it. And it turned out it was an adult woman, European ancestry, uh, I estimated at that time, 45 to 55. She would turn out to be 56, by the way. How can um, you tell it's European ancestry? Uh, basically, without DNA, uh, there are certain morphological features in the skull. They're not always reliable because there's a lot of overlap. But Europeans, the people of European descent, for example, tend to have long, thin noses like yeah. I do. Yeah. And so the nasal breath is very narrow. Other populations, like equatorial populations in Africa have wider nasal breath because of the need to get more oxygen in sure, uh, in, a sure. te- in, a, in a tropical environment. So there are certain morphological characteristics that one could look at and, and make an assessment like that. Certainly it doesn't replace DNA, but uh, in terms of that, but yes, we could, I, we could tell pretty readily that uh, this was a very narrow nose had kind of European features to it. But one of the things I also uh, mentioned to the police was that, while this person has been dead for over a hundred years, you can just tell by the cortical loss, the individual's never been buried in the ground because to be buried in the ground, 
when the soil starts to invade, um, soils and, and dirt particles will get in uh, orifices, will get in the, um, you know, the ear canals, it'll get into uh, nerve canals. And so you always find evidence in, in, uh, of a skull that's been buried of soil. This is clean. And yet there was what we call coffin wear on this individual. That is to say the forehead, if you're laying in a supplant position on your back in a coffin and the coffin board, you know, eventually decays and collapses on you, it presses against the bone and it will wear the bone sure. just like in the back of the skull on the, on the, on the head, on the bottom board will decay there. So you'll see what we call coffin wear. Uh, this, this is erosion of the bone in the places where the coffin. So I said, you know, I, you know, even I was, see, this is kind of strange because this person has been in a coffin, but it's never been on the ground. Did you think right away this must be a tomb somewhere? Or did you think this is just extremely weird? At, at first, I thought it was extremely weird. And, and as I'm trying to process this and thinking a tomb, um, that's when the police said, well, you know, we had a recent vandalism at Indian Hill Cemetery. Would you come and take a look? And so that's when we went to the cemetery. Huge mausoleums, brownstone of the uh, also Chauncey and Mooder families. Very that's really common. interesting. It's three families who yeah. build one mausoleum and they each have their own section of it. And they're divided by archways or something, right? That, yeah. Actually, uh, by in some cases, uh, archways, but bars, if you will, coming in inside and walling so that each area is separate. Marble floor. This was the fanciest tomb I'd ever been in. I had nothing compared to the earlier late 18th and early 19th century. When was this built? It was built, uh, we, we think, somewhere between uh, 1855 and 1860, just before the Civil War, uh, or maybe around 1860 or so. Um, uh, by the three families working together. Now, uh, the, the Mooders are important because they build a very famous museum down in Philadelphia. In, in, uh, the Alsops, political and, 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 and uh, even into the 20th century, uh, and, and business elites, and the Chaunceys. And they were, the Chaunceys, at least the Chaunceys and the Alsops were married, intermarried. So There you go, uh, which would explain why they'd, they'd build their yeah. final compound together exactly but very plush for considering the, the time so anyway we went to the and it turned out that the chauncey section was in the middle and it had been broken into it had a metal door but the lock had been bolted probably with snips large snips uh they got in and they vandalized four different burials now, and the police had in, already known about this break-in so when you told right. them it hadn't been buried, they made that connection and said, come take a look. That's exactly right. What'd you see? Said, yeah. Well, it was quite horrifying, actually. When you step in, it was a marble floor. And on the back wall, there were marble epitaphs and faults where the separate coffins were placed. Yeah. Vandals had broken in. They may have taken something like a, a crowbar or maybe even like a small uh, sledgehammer and smashed. You could actually see where it radiates out. So you could see where the smashes occurred on the epitaph marble. And they pulled the, the, the uh, marble off to expose the coffins that were so going in. There were marble covers, ceiling yep. vaults that the, the, shelves. the coffins had been put in. And they just smashed That's those it. apart. And then smashed what? Those, 
And then they reached in and they pulled out coffins, some of which were wood and literally exploded in their hands because of the decomposition. So, uh, for example, uh, for Lucy Chauncey, her burial, uh, they had removed her and her bones separated and her coffin separated, her wooden coffin separated, so that on the floor were her physical remains from the waist up, but her hips and legs were still in the back of the vault because they couldn't pull that off. Henry Chauncey was buried in a cast iron coffin, heavy as the Dickens. They only made these for a very few years, starting around the 1860s, 1870s, uh, heavy, they yanked that out. It shattered on the ground. They then, first, actually, the first burials were two kids on the lower shelves, uh, Charles Chauncey, and they pulled the kids out, and they had they had exploded. And these one were was very, very young children, right? One was like two and a half, and the other was five. Yeah. They punched holes in a zinc liner to get to the kids. And literally what happened is they literally threw bones around uh the interior of the tomb we found remains of lucy chauncey and henry chauncey dispersed away from their coffins did you have an idea did the police have an idea of why they had broken in not at this time or at least they were not sharing with me any of their ideas of what what they thought we were seeing and what i did is you know was kind of a mapping we started mapping the whole interior and then kind of using stratigraphy if you will we started excavating from the top down of the pile of bones. And so because of that, we were able to determine who was on top of whom so that we were able to actually reconstruct the sequence of which graves came out first, which ones were toppled over them and so forth. So I was able to kind of reconstruct some of the activities that occurred. So this is really a crime scene reconstruction. Was, yeah. was your approach different than in, say, the Bulkley tomb? Did, did you go about it using different techniques? No, not really. I mean, I think forensic archaeology is useful in whether you're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, ages-old mortuary practices or you're dealing with a modern crime uh, scene. Um, you know, it's recording, documenting, mapping, and making sure everything gets photographed and documented before you even you even start moving things. Then that's what we did. So what I started to do is reconstruct each one of the bodies. And it turns out that Lucy Chauncey was missing her cranium or skull. And we were able to match up the skull found behind the car wash with her postcranial remains. The coloration, the size, the sex, everything matched perfectly. After we did our inventory, the only skeletal element missing from the tomb was her skull. Turns out Henry Chauncey died in 1863 in Mount Holly, New Jersey, about as far south as a northern is going to get during the Civil War. And uh, he dies very suddenly at the age of 67. And as a result, they do an autopsy, which means they had sawed open his cranial vault. So his skull was in two pieces. The children were young and their skulls had not formed yet. Their skull was in, you know, pliable and, and the bones are separate. So the only complete skull of the four vandalized was Lucy Chauncey. And that's what they took. 
So that's why she was the only one that was missing. They searched the others, but they they only took her. I don't know why they take a skull, but at least they wanted a complete one. So that makes sense why they would take that one. But how does it get behind the car wash? Well, what basically what happened is the, the individual that was the suspect, the main suspect here. Uh, so, was, so the police had a suspect at this point. They no, okay. Let, let me go back. The, the police had a suspect for an armed robbery, armed robbery at a package store in Middletown. When they went into his residence, they found memorable uh, how do you want, paraphernalia, I should say, of cult, satanic cult materials, 666 were painted on the walls. There were altars, there were candles, there were all this paraphernalia. In interrogating him and this other guy, it was an accomplice, that's when the accomplice talked about the skull behind the car wash. And then with the vandalism, they were starting to put two and two together that maybe this guy was involved with the vandalism as well as armed robbery. And they wanted to put him away with everything they could, uh, you know, they can get him on. Sure. And so that's when we were, so pretty much it fell into place that the skull was stolen to be used on an altar for satanic cult ritual that uh, this young man was uh, was involved with. Wow. So he's a fairly disturbed individual, um, you know, and uh, he was found guilty based on some of our work, certainly the investigation of the Middletown Police Department. And, um, um, he did serve time. Uh, again, this was over, you know, this was in 1992, so um, quite a while ago. But uh, he did serve time, and, and the police were able to, uh, to convict him on it. They were able to confront him with what he actually did. They walked him step by step of what he did uh, because we were able to reconstruct everything he did and the sequence he did it in within the tomb. That must have been amazing. Now, did you participate in the trial of this individual? Were you? No, I, I didn't. Uh, and I, I think because at that time it was only a misdemeanor um, that they actually were able to get at least the confession out of the guy. Um, but uh, no, I never ended up going to the trial. You know, it's amazing. You hear something like this and you just think, how could, how could anybody ever do it? And okay, so... It happens, but you think, you know, my goodness, that must be a one-off. That would never happen again. But then here you are, not that long after, at the tomb of B.P. Morgan. Is that in Hartford? Yeah, it's the uh, uh, the tomb of um, Edwin Dennison Morgan, ah. who, uh, was, who uh, whose tomb, huge mausoleum, uh, is in India. Uh, excuse me, Cedar Hill uh, Cemetery in the south end of Hartford. And uh, it's, a, it's a fortress of a tomb. Uh, and likewise, vandals had broken in and stole skeletal remains, including Edwin Dennison himself. Like the Chauncey tomb, this is quite a place. It's got a named architect, right? It's got a named architect, Solins, uh, Lawrence rather, excuse me. Marble stairs going down into the basement and that's where the, the burials are. And they're arranged, again, just like at the Chauncey tomb, with marble epitaphs. But they weren't put in, say, feet first into the going back into the vault. They were laid sideways. From the front, you were looking at a wide marble, and they were laying per, uh, parallel to the wall. 
Yeah. But yeah. upstairs, upstairs, there was a chapel and a place where you can come in and meditate and pray with lights coming in and unbelievable. Sounds beautiful. I mean, just so well constructed. One of the major tombs uh, at Cedar Hill, and Cedar Hill's known for its just a wonderful late 19th century uh, tombs and, and, uh, and burial monuments. Now, is this the same family as J.P. Morgan, the financier? Who's also buried at Cedar Hill. But yeah, they're, they're cousins, two or three times removed. But uh, they definitely were related uh, through the Morgan family. Uh, this had an interesting start to it, by the way. Um, there was this vandalism uh, that, that, that was noted at Cedar Hill, and the Hartford Police Department were working on it kind of unsuccessfully. Then, subsequently, I think like four years later, in New Britain, Connecticut, the police are called into a domestic quarrel uh, at an apartment and uh, they're, they're breaking up the couple, the couple, you know, they weren't married. Um, they, they got the young man who was being abusive. They were bringing him out to bring him to the police station. And on the way out, she screams, the, the, the young woman screams, and he's got skulls in the closet. And of course the police just stopped it. They stopped in their tracks. They were like, what? And so they went back to the closet with the young woman. And sure enough, there in the closet, they found a suitcase. In the suitcase was a skull uh, and uh, 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 long bones. And then they found a terracotta ceramic pot with three legs with sticks and feathers and other kind of paraphernalia coming out of it. When you, say the, the, when you say the pot had three legs, that's that the pot rested on or three human legs? No, no, three legs. Three, yeah. the, the pot rested on it. It was a three-legged vessel. Got it. But inside the pot, they could see the top portion, the superior portion of a human skull. So wow. they brought, uh, obviously, they brought everything to the police station. The young man admitted that he was a priest of the Santaria uh, uh, cult, uh, 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 kind of a, a Afro-Caribbean religion that has some connections with Roman Catholicism, um, but he said he was not uh, of the dark side. These were not his, he does not use these remains, that they were from a priest from the, the Palom Mayumba, uh, Mayumi uh, 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 sect, which is the darker side, that needs human remains in for their healing and harming uh, uh, rituals. And it turns out that their belief is that the more powerful an individual was in their lifetime, the more power their bones have to release the spirits uh, uh, for the healing. That's the so fascinating. Therapy. So that explains the attraction to this wonderful, obviously wealthy and elite uh, tomb as a... Well, as a absolutely. Dennison, Edwin Dennison Morgan was um, governor of the, the state of New York before and during the Civil War. He became a senator from uh, New York State. He was, re he was given a, a, a volunteer general status by Abraham Lincoln because he uh, enlisted over 150,000 men from New York to serve in the Union Army. And Lincoln wanted him, he was a prominent businessman, uh, 
uh, as all the Morgans, huh? Uh, and Lincoln wanted him to be his Secretary of Treasury, but Morgan uh, turned him down uh, mm. uh, and would then go on to serve in the Senate and eventually retire from, from politics uh, um, and, and would die in 1883, where he was placed in the tomb that he had built for his family. So it turns out that when we at the uh, state chief's medical examiner's office, we were called in with our colleagues from Quinnipiac University, from the medical examiner's staff, uh, and we kind of archeologically excavated that pot. Um, we were- um, Now at this time, there was no connection when you were first encountering these bones with the Morgan vault. No, was but yeah, by the time I got called in, uh, by the medical examiner's office, they were already making the connection with, uh, and the reason they were, and I forgot to mention this, is that in the suitcase were the remains of a woman, and they also took a nameplate from her coffin, uh-huh. and it said, Mary B.P. Morgan. So when they traced Mary B.P. Morgan, they knew she was buried in Cedar Cemetery, and that's when they started collaborating with the cemetery and the Hartford Police Department for the vandalism that occurred a couple of years or a few years before. What so by story. the time I got called in, they had already made the connection with the Morgan tomb vandalism. But when I came in, we did two things. We went back to the tomb and we went into the tomb um, to see what evidences might be there to help us. Um, unfortunately, where the Chauncey tomb had been I mean, there were bones on the floor. There were coffins on the floor. When we got to the Morgan tomb, the coffins were back into their vaults. Mm. They were all metal coffins. They were put back into their vaults. And basically what happened is the police decided to clean it up uh, and put what was left. But what we were able to do is go into the coffins and do an inventory of the bones that were there compare them with the bones that were in uh, um, the suitcase and in the terracotta pot, and they matched up perfectly. There were two burials uh, vandalized, and one was Edwin Dennison Morgan himself, and the other one was Mary B.P. Morgan, who was his daughter-in-law. And uh, and so... um, we were able to get a perfect match with what was missing and what was in the suitcase. Uh, and we eventually we would restore them all to their vaults, um, all their skeletal remains back. Uh, and so we had pretty positive identification on those and it has now been secured. So no one, not even myself can get into that tomb anymore. How how wonderful though that you were able to kind of take these bones back to the their original resting place and and bring them back together. It's that's always been our goals whenever we deal with remains, whether they're Native American, Euro American, African American. Um, at, we don't keep bones anymore. We rebury them according to the cultural prescriptions of the people involved, and also you know if we can get the family and so forth, so that. We, we make those connections and um, try to be as respectful uh, uh, as we, and professional as we possibly can. So all human remains uncovered in the state of Connecticut um, 
um, are appropriately reburied. According well, to and, and as people will, who will know who have read your book, The Long Journey's Home, there's really no limit to what you'll do to get people back home. You, you, you tell the story of Henry Opukahaia and his repatriation to Hawaii and uh, Alfred Afredo Hawk, the Lakota Sioux, who died with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. And we have a long history of working with Native uh, Indigenous peoples as well as, you know, families like the Pickens and the Buckleys uh, to see that, uh, um, you know, their remains are respectfully reinterred uh, and, uh, uh, and, and with, you know, with ceremony according to their cultural prescriptions. Yeah. You know, rich, poor, Indigenous, yep. European, doesn't matter. We're all heading in the same direction, ultimately. <laughs> We're equal opportunity. That's right. So, we get, we so get, Nick, uh, what would you like readers of And So the Tomb Remained to take away from the book? What do you think, at the end of it, you'd, you'd like them to come away knowing or thinking or feeling? Well, you know, a little, a little bit about, you know, historical mortuary practice, you know, how we you know, uh, um, how we treat the dead, how we uh, uh, memorialize them, um, you know, comes out of a past that changed, you know, uh, some of it's based on technolo technological change. Some are, are there because of socioeconomic status, how they're memorialized. Um, uh, and, and even uh, into today, like today we have tombstones that are, you know, um, computer images now with uh, you know qr codes so where you can go online and learn more about the deceased and so but all of that comes out of a, a past that goes through various changes not just because of technology but because of cultural history what our beliefs and mores are and how that changes as we go in and so cemeteries first of all need to be preserved because they not only are to be respectful to the dead, but they are, they're like history books of our cultural history and our attitudes and our belief systems. Um, and they have so much to teach us. You know, we may get carried away with the ornateness or something, but really they, they tell us so much about ourselves uh, and, and who we are. And also I think, you know, working with these families um, it, again, that opportunity to look at the, the elite yeah. and see how they compare with the everyday person. I just hope people just enjoy the stories because I tried to, you know, I tried to write it so they are in the tomb with me. Uh, it, just... And it's exactly the feeling you get. You're discovering it right there next to you. It's a, it's a wonderful book and beautifully written. Before we leave, the last time I saw you in person, you know, back before the pandemic, was a little over a year ago. It was in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Oh, we yes. were in the basement of a person's house in Ridgefield. And it, Ridgefield is a site of a Revolutionary War battle, and you were uncovering the skeletons of a number of men. Tell us about that and what's happened since then. Well, it basically, it, you know, it, it started all uh, like some of these stories. It all started with a police investigation. So they were doing construction uh, in a dirt basement of an old house. Um, 
that um, they were cutting down the dirt about 18 inches to, re to lay cement and, and restore the, the uh, or not restore, but to, to, to put a, a, a new room in the basement uh, when they hit skeletal remains. The workers recognized them as human, contacted the Richfield Police Department. They went down, saw the bones, contacted the Chief State's Medical Examiner's Office. They sent their forensic anthropologist down to uh, investigate. They, they saw that the remains were in fact old and not part of a modern criminal investigation. Um, and then another set of remains came up and they called myself as the state archeologist to come in and investigate. And as I'm driving down there, I, I, I know the, the, the address, I know where it is. And I'm thinking about the possibility of um, the Battle of Ridgefield in April uh, 27, 1777, the only interior battle fought in the state of Connecticut. Um, and, um, and I'm saying, geez, I wonder if there could be a connection, but you don't wanna make assessments and judgments. It could Correct. be a small burying ground, uh, you know, farming family burying ground. But what it ended up turning out to be is uh, when we finished our work, we had four individuals, three of which were buried side by side in a mass grave. And they were overlapping each other in terms of arms and legs. So they were hastily put in. So three were together, one had a kind of a separate grave. The hypothesis that it might be a, a burial ground um, started to fall apart because every one of the skeletons as we uncovered them were adult men. We could mm -hmm. see that from what we saw on the ground, uh, robust and between the ages probably of 20 and 40. Um, and two of them actually had waistcoats on that were part of uh, jackets or shirts, um, but no pants, no boots, no buckles. So this hypothesis that these could be victims of the Battle of Ridgefield stayed with us. And it seems to play out. Uh, we, we recovered 38 buttons, mm -hmm. uh, two of which were pewter. The rest were a brass alloy. We had those cleaned up and there are no regimental insignia. That is to say, they're plain buttons, but the buttons date to the late 18th century. And they had, we were able to get these dark patches in the soil mm -hmm. of decomposing. We collected those up and they turned out to be thread that oh. was covering the button. So these were thread covered buttons in a cross hatch, mm -hmm. no insignia. But we do know that the American, this is very early in the war and the very American patriots were coming in off the field. They were coming out of their farms to help defend Richfield. And so while there's no military insignia, these could be representing uh, um, uh, American militia. One other thing we found, which is really cool, we thought was originally in the field of button, but back in the lab, it turns out to be a finial, an attachment to a powder horn. Ah. So that the finial was on the end of a powder horn. They must have pulled the powder horn from this individual and, um, um, the finial broke off of the strap. So presumably they're, the bodies, they're stripping them of the things they can use. And, yes, and this exactly. is all being done very quickly. And very quickly. And they're buried very quickly. So the yeah. plan, the plan last December year ago was 
to have the skeletons forensically examined at Yale and other places to uh, try to determine if they were British or American and, and how much could be known about them. Then the pandemic came. I don't know. Has anything been done with that? Is that still the plan? No, in terms of the forensic work, we, we were shut down by the pandemic because all of the university laboratories that are part of our team have all been closed down. They are the exciting news is they're starting to be reopened. And um, uh, Dr. Gary Aronson, who helped us in the field, is also uh, the director of the bioanthropology laboratories at Yale University, is spearheading the forensic work. We have colleagues from about five or six different universities around uh, the, uh, the United States. They'll be doing DNA, stable carbon isotope, every single analysis we could possibly come up with. So the, the exciting news is twofold actually. Number one is the labs are reopening and we're starting to move forward. But also in that time period, we have uh, are now collaborating with our colleagues in upstate New York a few years, a couple of years ago, also at Fort William Henry, there was a construction project. They were getting ready to put a, a building up and it, the bulldozers started to uncover bones. When the archeologists finally were able to get in, though it was late and a lot had been disturbed, they were able to go through the back dirt piles, do some controlled excavations of some of the burials that only had been partially affected by the construction. Uh, they're starting to put their work together. This was Fort William Henry when, uh, uh, based on the records, when it was housed during the, revolu uh, during the revolution. During the revolution, not, not not during the French and Indian War. Exactly. And we know from records that a lot of these guys died of smallpox and were buried there. So what we've decided, and you know, working together with our colleagues up there in New York, is that, look, we're the only two anywhere in America that have actual skeletal remains of Revolutionary War soldiers, one from a battlefield, one from a cemetery. But what we're gonna do is collaborate together. And, uh, you know, in fact, we were exchanging messages last week where we're going to start going to, you know, National Science Foundation, start looking for grants that will support uh, the laboratory work that needs to be done. So a lot's going on. Uh, uh, also, um, the, um, Richfield Historical Society, as you might remember, had applied to the National Park Service for a national battlefield grant, and they were awarded that grant. And so they have now gone through that selection process. Someone is coming on board real soon. Uh, and what that survey grant will do now is systemize, you know, uh, uh, not only the archaeology in town, but the, uh, the, the historic record going into to what we have. Through the years, people have found in their yards cannonball and musket balls and other kind of, uh, but nobody has systematically um, surveyed. And so uh, with the new teams that are going to come in with the survey battlefield grant, they include historians and archaeologists. They're going to go out there, metal detect, do what they can and start plotting the movements and try to see you know, from the barricade, if you know the story of the battle, back through town with the retreat and how that all went. So, you know, my feeling is within a year or two, we're going to have um, some amazing work done, I think, um, uh, on that battle and, and, and what was going on in New York State, too. Why do I suddenly have the feeling that I'm hearing the introduction to your next book? 
<laughs> oh, we got a long way to go. We got a long way to go, but don't tempt me. It's probably going to, yeah, I, I really, there'll be a, a scientific report, I'm sure, with, with all the forensics and everything. Well, we'll when it. anything we'll comes out, I hope you will come back and we can do this again. Nick, I always love to talk to you. You are just one of the most fascinating people I ever get to spend time with. So, Nick, one last question. I promise this is my final, <laughs> final question. And that is, where can people who are interested get And So the Tomb Remained? It's available on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, all the major book outlets. You can order it through the, the website of uh, Oxbow Books and Casemate Publishers. So uh, look those up, but uh, it's available online at most uh, book outlets. And it is a it, it is a great read, and you know this is one of those cases where the story's fabulous and the images are fabulous too. And so is the man who wrote them. Nick, thanks again. Bye bye, buddy. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. To hear the first part of the interview with Nick, download episode one twelve of Grading the Nutmeg, and so the tomb remained. For more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. To receive a daily email about a historic event from the same day in the past, subscribe to todayinct.history.com. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.